It's always a bit of a dilemma when you come to think about a model text and a New Year's message. And in essence, if you were look to, if you were to examine sermon audio today and go through all the various uh, preachers and all of their texts, you'll find that the texts largely fall into one of two categories. They're either texts that are exhortation texts, or they are texts that are encouragement texts. It tends to be the case. You can do your own homework on that, go back and see uh, through our churches and sermon audio, and you'll see that those who preach a model text, they'll fall into one of those two categories. I think we understand as preachers of the Word of God that it is important at times to exhort God's people to do better. And yet we also understand that it's vital that they're encouraged to think properly and to think better thoughts, better thoughts of themselves, better thoughts of God's. Because you can't think better thoughts of yourself unless you understand what God has done for you as a believer. And so sometimes we think, well, it's a year for exhortation, and perhaps it's a year for encouragement. Well, I think the apostles understood that exhortation ought to follow encouragement. A preacher can be guilty of berating and rebuking a congregation continually without giving them any words of encouragement. That's not apostolic, and it's not godly. It can be temptation in some personalities to do that, to really seek to domineer the congregation, do as I say or else. But that's not the ways of the Lord. Even here in this chapter, we have verse number 5, which opens up a section of exhortation. And besides this, giving all diligence. You've got to be diligent in your Christian life. Add to your faith virtue, the virtue knowledge, and so forth. It is the matter of giving diligence. Verse number 10, Wherefore the rather brethren give diligence. Those are words of exhortation. And if the child of God is growing slack in their Christian walk, they need to hear those words. In fact, all of us must hear those words at all times. Be diligent in your Christian walk. But verse 5 follows the encouragement of verses 3 and 4. These words are rich in encouragement. According as His divine power hath given unto us all things, things that pertain unto life and godliness. If I could update those words, I could put it this way. We could say to each other on the first day of a new year, you will lack nothing that you need to live for God in 2023. You will lack nothing that you need to live for God in 2023. That is the teaching of the Bible. God's people lack nothing they need. You may not have everything you want, but when it comes to your Christian walk, you will lack nothing that you need. It's important to remember that. We are all, maybe maybe I'm just sentimental, but we're all reflective as a year closes. And we're reflective looking back and we think back to our past mistakes and failures and all those things that brought encouragement We look towards a new year and we perhaps enter a new year and there are some very profound present difficulties. And you enter a new year and already you're carrying and dragging behind you so many burdens. And you get to the point that they're so heavy you feel you're not going to take another step further. Present difficulties. 
And there are some, and they face a new year, and they have all manner of future anxieties. They're often so consumed with anxieties that they're fearful for those things that they don't even know about yet. The unknown tomorrows, as well as those things that we expect to come across our path in a new year, present difficulties and future anxieties, none of those things are any obstacles to the power of God. His divine power hath already given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Hence, we will lack nothing that we need to live for God in 2023. Preacher, I'm not so sure. Is that your immediate response? You look back to the past year and you think of your failures. Surely at that point I lack something. Well, there is a battle of faith in this. The Word of God comes to us and our responsibility is to take what God says at His Word. Say, yes, it is true. And therefore we, we enter future anxieties and we, we take present difficulties with us in the confidence of what God says is true. And so we lack nothing. By the way, Paul taught the same thing. His text is perhaps somewhat more familiar back in Romans chapter 8. Turn back there. Romans chapter 8. You get the very same thing. This is not just Peter trying to encourage people who are suffering, although they are suffering in Peter's time. They know what it is to be burdened for their faith literally. And yet Paul says to them, or Peter says to them, you've already got all things pertaining to life and godliness. And Paul, in like manner, Romans chapter 8, verse number 32, he that spared not his own son, but delivered up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? All things again, freely given to those who have already been given Christ. And when God has given his son and given his son to death, there is thereby the guarantee that he will with Christ freely give us all things. Now that means, again, I put it this way, that means that we will lack nothing that we need to live for God in 2023. That's why Paul, going back in Romans chapter 8, can say, we know all things work together for good to them that love God. That nothing can separate us from love of God. We know in Romans chapter 8, verse 29 and following, that those who are called will be glorified. That there's no potential for a breaking in the chain. In other words, you will lack nothing you need to be glorified in 2023. If that is God's purpose, you will lack nothing that you need. You see, perhaps put a marker in Romans 8. We'll turn back there quite shortly. But in 2 Peter chapter 1, you will see that this matter comes because of the sufficiency of God's grace. Why will we lack nothing that we need? Well, it's all because of God's grace. Note verse 3 and 4 both start with clauses that have the verb given included. According as His divine power hath given, whereby are given, verse number 4, and the word that is used, there's quite an unusual word in the, in the original. It has the idea of bestowing something freely, graciously, gratuitously is the word that Strong uses in his concordance and dictionary. God's grace is the reason we lack nothing. Everything we need, we have, and will continue to have in God's kindness. Now, I want to get to the promise but not to next week. Too much to cover in the message this morning for us to have lunch and to pray together this afternoon. We'll be here a very long time. So we're going to cut this into two parts. 
And today, what I want to do is really show you the promise is strengthened to our hearts by the foundation upon which it rests. So the assurance, if you like, of verse number three, it is of great strength because of its foundation. And so you'll see in your bulletin there are three things that we'll cover over the next couple of weeks. First of all, God's grace in saving, then God's grace in supplying, and God's grace in securing. And so I give you the outline for this week and next week, although our time today will be considering God's grace in saving, in saving sinners. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, commenting on this verse, says this, Surely we are confronted here with one of the most remarkable descriptions of the Christian life that is to be found even in the New Testament itself. And nothing is more necessary for us here Christians at this present hour. That we should remind ourselves again of something of the character of the Christian life in which we find ourselves. Say amen. We must understand what we are as Christians in this world today. So we see in these verses, first of all, we do see God's grace in saving. It begins, verse 1, with the idea that they've obtained like precious faith through righteousness and salvation that found in Christ Jesus He opens up with the thought of salvation. He reminds the people immediately that they are saved by God's grace, run to faith and righteousness through Christ Jesus. It's a salvation introduction. And in our text, verse 3 and 4, there are salvation terms that are woven through the text. Now, there are some that have a future aspect. And we'll see those in a future study called to glory and virtue. Be partakers of the divine nature. They have a a present and a future aspect. We're going to focus on those that are past and present. Past ones are used. Verse number three, hath called us. We have been called. There's also the idea, past tense, that we have escaped the corruption in this world. Verse number four, having escaped the corruption that is in this world through lust. And then there's the present reality. We have verse number, uh, verse number three again, through the knowledge of him that hath called us. We live in relationship with God. And so the, those things are true of the believers at that time. They have been called, they have escaped, and they're in knowledge and in fellowship with the living God. And we're going to think about those three things in turn. First of all, please note, God's sovereign act of calling. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us. Hath called us. I think this term is neglected today. The calling of God. I think this neglect is in some part the reason why so many fail to grasp how God saves. When was the last time someone described themselves as a Christian, as one who is called of God? When's the last time you heard that? Not describing a call to ministry in some fact. I've been called of God to ministry or to the mission field. But describing themselves as a believer, I am someone who has been called of God. Anybody? It's really rare. And yet, it is overwhelming in its emphasis in the epistles. Paul and Peter use this continually to describe what it is and what's happened to the sinner whereby they come to know the Lord. 
I want you to focus on three simple things. You'll see them there in your outline. Calling is a divine act in the heart of man that originates our response in the one who is called. Callings and work of God. It's a work of God internally in our hearts. And it effectually produces a result in the one that is called. Now, there is an external call in the Scriptures. Many are called, but few are chosen. That is true. There is an external summons or command that comes in the gospel. But here we're thinking about what God does in our hearts. And that is really how the term calling is used in both Paul and Peter's epistles. And so let's try to prove that. A divine act in the heart of man that originates a response in the one that's called. Young people, I want you to learn that. If someone asks you, what is the calling of God? You know what this is. It's a divine act. It's God's act. It's in the heart of man. And it produces a response in the one that's called. This is what God does in calling. You must know this. You must learn this. You must understand this. It's so important regarding going forward in the Christian life. Now, let's begin with Paul. Turn across to Romans chapter 8. Need your Bibles here. And let me, New Year, let me re-encourage you. Get a Bible in front of you, whether it's one in the pew or one that you brought with you. Have a Bible and use it. It's so very, very important to follow along as we seek to study God's Word together. Romans chapter 8. I turned your attention here already to verse number 32. And now I want to take you back to the verse number 28. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. So times we leave that verse there, don't we? We miss the rest of it. It is to them who are the called according to his purpose. I'm glad the second part is there. My love for God goes hot and cold. But God's calling and his purpose never changes. And therefore, I know that all things work together for the good of those who are called. And so he expands upon that verse number 29. What is the purpose of God? Well, those he foreknew to forelove, detailing the issue of eternal election. He also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among my brethren. That's, that's God's purpose. That's God's purpose in calling, that those who are called are conformed to Christ's likeness. And he describes that in verse number 30. Whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Do you see it's a divine act? Who does the predestination? God. Who does the glorification? God. Who does the justification? God. Who does the calling? Therefore, it is God and must be God. It is God who calls. This is God's divine act. And you'll see the outcome of God's calling in Romans chapter 8 is that those who are called are justified. Now, young people, again, you must understand, how is a sinner justified? Well, they are justified by Christ's righteousness being imputed to them. They receive Christ's righteousness, and they receive that by faith alone. Justified by faith. We believe the gospel and are justified but it's God who does the justification. He does the declaration of righteousness. But we receive that by faith. So between, look at verse number 30 again. Whom he called, and there's a comma. 
If you open up that comma, you get in there, if you like, if you can think this in your mind, you, you get the action of man in believing the gospel. Whom he called, them he also justified. So between calling and justification, logically, comes faith. Hence, I say, there is a certain response in the heart of those who are called. God calls. It's internal. And it produces faith whereby those who are called are justified. There's no one justified who does not believe. And therefore, there's no one who believes who is not first called of God. The divine work of God in the heart of a sinner whereby they come to believe the gospel and are justified freely by God's grace. That's Romans chapter 8. Is that the only place? Of course not. Turn to 1 Corinthians, please. 1 Corinthians and the chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, again, where Paul mentions this idea of, of calling. You see there verse number 24 of this chapter. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. This verse has often caused me to think and wonder what's involved here. Look at verse number 23, where Paul says, We preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. So verse number 23 describes the response of people to the preaching of the gospel. The Jews, well, they have a suffering, a broken, a crucified Messiah. They stumble that Christ was indeed Jesus of Nazareth. They stumble at those things. They fall over it. They won't believe it. The Greeks, they think it's just simple foolishness. And so the Jews, they want to prove a sign. Verse 22, the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. So verse 23, to my mind, seems to teach that when Christ is preached, there are these responses of rejection for various reasons. And so you get to the verse number 24, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, their response to Christ is that they see in Christ the power of God and they see in Christ the wisdom of God. They believe that Christ is the power of God and they believe that Christ is the wisdom of God. So they don't want a sign. They don't need a sign to prove the power of God. Christ is the power of God. That's why I fear for so many who are deceived in the charismatic movement. They seek a sign. But the sign's been given. His name is Jesus. He's shown the power of God. No need for any more signs. So they believe that Christ is the power of God. We went through this morning. Incarnation, ministry, atonement, resurrection. All those things that show the power of God. Well, they, they who are called, they don't see Christ as a stumbling block or foolishness. They see Christ as the power and wisdom of God. Because God... God has worked in their hearts. They've been called. There's that internal work of God in their hearts whereby they come to be convicted regarding the cross and the gospel. They have convictions. They're not like the world around them. Others, Jews and Greeks, they won't believe. But those who are called, Jews and Greeks, they do believe. You see again the point? It's a divine act. They are called of God and it produces this response. 
Now, those who are called come to believe the gospel. Hence, Paul could say in this very chapter, verse number 9, God is faithful by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the outcome of calling is to bring us into fellowship. We'll see that as we close this morning. Into fellowship with Christ Jesus. Do you know something, though? You can't have fellowship with Christ unless your sin is dealt with. You must be justified. And how are you justified? By faith. How do you believe? Because you're called. Therefore, you're called unto fellowship. All of these things fit together. It is God's divine act. Well, our time's marching on. Let me just read two verses with you. You can follow along if you can. First Thessalonians chapter 2. I want to spend time on those two verses, but First Thessalonians chapter 2, and the verse number 12, where Paul exhorts them to walk worthy of God, who hath called you, again this term called being used, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory, for this cause also thank we go without ceasing. Because when you received the word of God, which you heard of us, you received not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Called unto the kingdom. And as Paul reflects upon those words, he reminds himself of the time when they heard the word of God and believed the word of God. Consistent themes, isn't it? Calling in the heart, leading to faith, whereby the gospel is received. And then the people come into the kingdom of Christ. Second Timothy. Chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, the verse number 9. We saw this recently in our studies in 2 Timothy. Paul again referring to the grace of God in the gospel who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling. And here simply point out to you that he used the word saving and calling in the same direction, the same section. He's saying, well, those who are saved are those who are called. Those who are called are those who are saved. You can't be called and not be saved. And so therefore, there's a calling here that's not universal, that's not external. There are many who are called externally, but are not saved. But there's this internal calling in the heart that is the same as being saved by God's grace. Paul talks of Christians often as those who have been called. Well, you can now take that. Perhaps you already have. You can take that to your heart. I'm somebody and I've been called of God. God's worked in my heart to produce faith in the gospel. But not just Paul. Peter also. Turn across now to 1 Peter. Peter's referred to it, of course, in 2 Peter in our text. Called us to glory and virtue. But 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 and the verse 14. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. And here I just want to simply note that this calling is consistent with those who have been converted from their former lusts. That they've been saved by God's grace. They've been delivered from their depravity and brought to the point whereby they desire holiness. And there Peter says, be who you are. Chapter 2 of 1 Peter, verse number 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him 
who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Here are those who are called. The chosen generation, the kingly priests, the peculiar people, those who are not in darkness but in light, those who are now the people of God, those who obtain mercy. All of those terms are consistent with the one who's been called of God. Called. One last verse. Chapter 5 of 1 Peter, verse number 10. 1 Peter 5, verse number 10. But the God of all grace, who hath called us into His eternal glory by Christ Jesus. You see, the purpose of God in calling is not to elicit a profession of faith, but to transform us to the point that we believe the gospel and we believe the gospel forevermore. We're called unto eternal glory. So those who are called are justified and those who are justified are glorified. Peter and Paul, they knew the same gospel. They preached the same gospel. And they clearly taught the sovereign grace of God in his act of calling. So that's the first thing in this grace that saves. It is God's sovereign act of calling. But please note, secondly, man's saving response. Again, this is another term that I think is somewhat neglected. Back to 2 Peter chapter 1. Those who have been called at the end of verse number 3 are those described in verse 4, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now this doesn't describe God's act now. This describes man's act. Man's response to God's saving act. God calls and man escapes. The term is active. It involves someone fleeing for their life from danger. In other words, it means what it says. They're not running a race at this point. The picture is of one who is in peril and in danger and flees for their life. If you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, make that your task this year. Not long Bible reading, but make sure you also read Pilgrim's Progress, which emphasizes again the danger in this state of destruction. And those who are in that city are told to escape. Flee the wrath of God to escape for their lives. Well, here we see that described here in 2 Peter chapter 1. Escaped. This world. The world. Those of you who are Bible scholars understand that the word world is used in various ways in various places. There is not just one meaning for world in our Bibles Some people suggest even in John's gospel there may be five or even seven different ways in which the word world is used. What's the idea here? Is it referring to this age? The age in which Peter and those who are living, is that the idea? Is it referring to this world in terms of the location in which they're living? Like the physicality of this world? Well, I think, of course, here we have some instruction in the language used. It is the world that is in corruption. The corruption that is in the world through lust. It's using the word world as that which exists under the curse. The world that is marked by sin and the fall. Think darkness and devil. The words used turn across to Second Peter chapter 2. 
Peter picks up this thought again in the verse number 20. For if after they've escaped the pollutions of the world, again, that's the same language being used here. This world is marked by pollution. But turn back, please, again to Romans chapter 8. For the same language is used in Romans chapter 8. This time in the word corruption that is used, Romans chapter 8, verse number 21, because the creature, again the word creature there refers not to an individual creature, but to creation. The creation was made, sorry, the creature itself, verse 21, shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And the creation is groaning, verse 22 and 23 for redemption, for the finality of God's work in redemption. And so the world under corruption is the world that is marked by the curse and the fall. It's the world under sin. And it is under sin because of lust. You think of the lust of her first parents. Eve saw the fruit that it was good and she took the fruit. This matter of lust that brings corruption into the world. Martin Lloyd-Jones describes it this way. The characteristic of man's natural life is that it is a life lived according to desire. I think if we understand this, this actually opens up our minds to understand what happens in the world today, the world under corruption. It's living according to man's lust, man's desire. He continues, he says this, Man by nature does not ask, is this good? Is this godlike? Is this pure? Is this clean? Is this elevating? Is this spiritual? He doesn't ask those questions. He asks, do I like it? Isn't that true? The world in which we live is marked by men and women who ask the question regarding conduct, do I like it? Man is governed by his desires, says Lloyd-Jones, by that which pleases him. And by that which panders to his lower nature. We've been escaped. We've escaped from this. To be saved is to believe the gospel. It is to repent. It is to come to Christ. It is to rest in Christ. But it is also to escape this world that is in corruption through lust. To become a Christian is to escape this world. We live in a time when, of course, so many churches have completely and utterly lost sight of this. You don't need to leave the world to come to Christ. You can have Christ and the world. You have Christ and all your desires and all corruption. You know, the, the free grace of God, the free love of God is such, that you don't need to run away from this world. Of course, the Bible teaches that those who are saved recognize the world for what it is. You see, what God does in calling us, He shows us the kingdom of light. He shows us Christ in our hearts. We see the glory of the gospel, and we see the glory of the gospel not in isolation, but in contrast to the darkness of this world. It all comes together. When you see Christ, you see the devil. When you see the kingdom... You see, this world, 
and you see the contrast, and you come to recognize these things by God's grace. And so the called are those who are called out of darkness into light. And if that's not been your experience, you think carefully what you think has happened to you in your religious experience. Before you love darkness, but you hear the gospel and you're awakened, you perceive darkness around you. You might not describe it in those terms, but those of you who are saved, that's what happened to you. Things changed. Once you love this action, now you hate that action. Once you hankered towards the word world, and now you hate the world and all of its sin. Not perfectly. We still wrestle and struggle with sin, but there is a radical change in our lives when we are called by God's grace. We do escape the corruption that's in the world through lust. We, we recognize, we recognize the bondage of living for pleasure and not from principle. That's bondage. If you love unsaved loved ones, you see them and you see they, they live for pleasure, not principle. They, they're in bondage to this world. Again, let me read from Lloyd-Jones. He says this, If we listen to the world as we all do by nature, it makes us not only think less and less of God, but even makes us feel that God is against us. It may even create an enmity against God and a hatred of God within us. It gives us a positive liking and longing for the things that are hurtful to us, the things that abase us, the things that are lower than us, the things that drag us further and further away from God. We listen to this world, we are dragged into its corruption. But those who are called, their hearts are changed, and they come to see through the facade of this world. They come to see that all that glitters is not gold. They come to recognize that all those things that look like precious and pleasures are miserable and bring great corruption. And so we flee from this. We flee from this corruption. You see, the corruption described in verse number 4 is a corruption that speaks of decay and ruin. The idea is used over in chapter 2. Look at verse number 6 of chapter 2, where Peter describes the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. They're, they're under corruption, if you like. They're, the threat of corruption hangs upon them. And out of those cities, God delivers just Lot. If you like, Lot serves as a picture the angels come and they announce the judgment of God and they announce the mercy of God that if he comes with them, he'll be delivered from the wrath of God to come. And so Lot, if you like, he's a picture of calling. God calls him and he responds to that call. And he's therefore delivered, verse number 7, delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, he, he, he's come to see the corruption of Sodom and Gomorrah. God in His grace has opened His mind to see this. He's called of God and He comes to escape. He flees the cities of destruction. And so verse number 9 says this, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. And that goes all the way down through those who denied this, those who walk in the lust of their flesh, verse number 10, what happens to them? Verse 12, but these as natural brute beasts, living in their own lusts, doing their own pleasures, not stopping themselves by thinking of principle, what happens to them? 
They're taken and destroyed. They speak evil things that they shall understand not and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. See, the natural man is unto corruption. Ultimately, perish in that corruption of the wrath of God. But praise God, those who are saved, we have escaped this destruction. We've escaped this corruption. God's call leads to our action to run from our lives. This world is coming to the end, appointed by God, coming under the wrath of God. Flee for your life today, dear lost soul. Escape for your life to the glory of God. And so in this saving act, we see God's sovereign act of calling and we see man's saving response. And just briefly, we'll come back to this more in more detail later on. We see the outcome, which is namely fellowship with God. Verse 2 refers to the knowledge of God and our Savior and of Jesus our, our Lord. And then verse number 3 picks up again through the knowledge of Him that hath called us. Those who are called of God, those who have escaped the wrath of God, they are those who come to know God. Now, this term of the knowledge of God is usually describing more than simply knowing about God. John 17, in the high priestly prayer of Christ, this is life eternal, that I may know thee, the only true God. There are many who know about God who don't have life eternal. And says, this eternal life is the knowledge of God. It's knowing God in fellowship and communion. It's part of the new covenant promises. They shall all know me, Hebrews chapter 8, quoting Jeremiah 31. They shall all know me from the least to the greatest. Because God has forgotten their sins, their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Those whose sins are forgiven are those who come into the knowledge of God and they fellowship with God's. See, this is so important right now. Note the promise of 2 Peter chapter 1. According as the divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. In fellowship with God, all things are given for us because God is committed to His people. He's committed to the relationship. That covenantal relationship. Has God called you? Has God called you in the gospel whereby you've come to believe the gospel and escape this world? Then God has forgiven you your sins. Your sins and iniquities will you remember no more. And how, how could it ever be possible that the God who's called you and forgiven you will leave you lacking anything you need to live for him in 2023? To suggest that God will not keep you and sustain you and provide for you in this new year is to deny God's faithfulness. He commits himself to his people, those who know him and those whom he knows. He commits himself, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. These saving truths are the foundation of the certainty of verse number three. We'll come back to that. But as we close, 
in light of who we are as those who've been saved, we can walk with confidence this year. We can be confident of God's supply. We can be bold and courageous. We can be fearless as we go forward to serve God in a new world. May God help us in that regard. But let me ask you a very simple question. Are you in this right relationship with God? These promises belong to those who know the Lord. Are you in a right relationship with God today? Why don't you start a new year with God today? Start a new year and make sure you face this new year in a right relationship with the living God. To enter this year in your own strength is absolutely fearful. You have no idea what's to come. May God enable you to seek his face today. Or some of you here, perhaps, and you hanker after the world out of which you've escaped. Peter refers to that in 2 Peter chapter 2, in the verse number 20. Those who've escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of Christ are again entangled therein. Describing apostasy, those who have a profession but fall away. Are you hankering after the world today? God's called you. You've escaped these things, but does your heart hanker back to the world? These are questions to ask. May God help us and encourage us in his word today. Let's all bow together, please, in prayer. Almighty God, we pray you'd help us. Help us to understand what you've done for us. Help us to understand your workings in our lives. Thank you we can talk about the change you wrought in our souls. Thank you, Lord, that many of us can look back to the time when we were in the world and we loved the world. We certainly didn't love thee. And you changed our hearts, you moved in our souls. We thank you, Lord, for this. Help us to live it out, to live in confidence, to live in holiness. We pray for those who are still in their sins, who have not believed the report and have not seen the arm of God revealed. Open their hearts today. Bless our fellowship. We thank you for the food prepared for us. Help us to now eat and drink to your glory. And may we reconvene shortly with a desire to pray and to seek your face. So bless us and encourage us. May our walk with thee be sweet today. In Jesus' name, amen.